Welcome to the sermon podcast of Exodus Church, located in Belmont, North Carolina. For more information about our church and the many ways you can be involved, please go to our website at theexoduschurch.org or email us at info at theexoduschurch.org. If you'll take your Bible and turn to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. Today is our last Sunday in the series, Our King and His Kingdom. As we've been looking at what Jesus describes here in Matthew chapter 5, he's talked to us, our king has explained to us what it means to be a kingdom citizen of his kingdom. Okay, He's talked to us about what it means to be a disciple. He's talked to us about what it means for us to submit to the king and his kingdom here in Matthew 5. And what he's done for most of Matthew 5 is unpack what he meant in verse 20, where he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and Pharisees were those known to be the best of the best of the best in terms of their external righteousness or their religious performance. And Jesus says to his followers, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you'll never get in. Now, for many of us, what we hear is, I need more of what they have. That's not actually what Jesus is teaching. He's not saying you need more of what they have. It's not that you need a different amount of their righteousness, but you need a different kind of righteousness altogether. You don't simply need a performance kind of righteousness. What we really need is an internal heart-level righteousness that can only be given as a gift. And so what Jesus has been doing in the rest of Matthew 5 is explaining and expanding what that means. And what we see in our passage today is that this different kind of righteousness is expressed in a different kind of love. And my hope is that as followers of Jesus, that we would leave here today ready to display the kind of kingdom love that Jesus calls us to in this passage. All right. So I'm going to read Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. I'll pray, and then we'll jump into God's word. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray together. Father, we we feel the uh, gravity of that last verse. This, this command that we must be perfect like you are perfect. And Lord, when we hear that, we, we're aware, like we know ourselves better than anyone knows us except you, and we, we know uh, that there's no way we can do that apart from your grace. So Lord, as we, as we listen to your command, I pray that we would be really reminded of your grace today. I also pray that that would not become an excuse to not obey the command. I pray that when we see commands in your word, that we would certainly be dependent on you, but that we would not use dependence on you to be disobedient to your commands, that we would, we would be dependent on you so that we might demonstrate what you command. Help us, Lord. 
Help us with that today, particularly with something so tangible, so practical, so necessary and important as loving those who are not like us. Help us, Lord. Help us. We need you. We pray to you in the name of Jesus today. Amen. Now, before we get into the passage, I want to remind you the context of the passage uh, in verses 33 to 37, uh, Jesus is talking about how we speak to one another. He's talking about how we, uh, about our word. And in uh, verses 38 to 41, he's talking about how people might hurt us. And so all this conversation around loving uh, our enemies and praying for those who persecute you is in that, that kind of context, okay? It's in the context of being hurt, of being lied to, of being wounded. And in that context, Jesus calls us to a love that is totally different than the love that's in the world. He calls us to a kingdom love. So those are the two things we're going to see today, a worldly love and a kingdom love. Okay, let's start with worldly love in verse 43. In verse 43, we see this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, Jesus has been engaging throughout chapter five. He's been using this uh, kind of formula. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And sometimes what, what is said has been written down in the Old Testament word for word. Sometimes what is said is what leaders have read the Old Testament and then they've taken another step to say, well, the Old Testament says this, it doesn't say this, so we're gonna say this. And so Jesus is engaging here what religious leaders have said. And those scribes and Pharisees whose righteousness is we're, we're to exceed, they're the ones who have said, you shall uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so the, the assumption here is that the Old Testament specifically says love your neighbor, but it never specifically says love your enemy. And the Old Testament never uses that phrase, love your enemy. Now it says uh, show kindness to your enemy, be generous with your enemy. It says some of those things, but it never says the phrase love your enemy. That's what Jesus says in the next verse. And so these religious leaders would kind of extrapolate from that, well, we have to love our neighbor, Jesus said that, but we don't, therefore, have to love our enemy so we can hate them. And so these religious leaders of the day had kind of created this command where we could obey it and we get to define what neighbor means. And so Jesus describes this as a worldly kind of love, and I'll show you why I'm calling it that in just a moment. So what is worldly love here? Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Now the problem Jesus is trying to engage here is our tendency to define who our neighbor is in the smallest possible terms. And he engages two ways we define that in verses 46 and 47. The first thing that neighbor means in verse 46 is someone who loves me back. Look at verse 46 with me. Jesus says, for... If you love those who love you, if you love those who love you, what, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. So these people had defined love your neighbor by saying, okay, my neighbor means those who love me. And Jesus is saying, don't even the tax collectors do that? Now, listen, tax collectors were not people who worked for the Jerusalem IRS. Okay, that's not what this is about. Tax collectors were the one of the most hated groups of people because these were Jewish men who worked for the Roman occupation. 
And Rome would pass taxes down to these tax collectors. They would add a little bit or a lot to it and then tell the Jewish people, I need your money. They'd keep whatever was on top and give the taxes to Rome. So they were taxing their brothers, their Jewish brothers. They would tax them and then they would pass that along to the occupation who were doing really awful things to their Jewish uh, citizens, okay? And so these were hated people. And Jesus says, look, if love your neighbor means love those who love you, then even the most hated people among you do that. The second way these people seem to have been defining love your neighbor is in verse 47. He says, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing, uh, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. And so the second kind of category that defined love your neighbor was not only love those who love you, but love those who are like you, your brothers, your Jewish brothers, he would say. And he's like, look, even the Gentiles do that. He's like, everybody does that. So when we call this worldly love, basically Jesus is saying, look, if that's how you define love your neighbor, if love your neighbor means love those who love you and love those who are like you, then everybody does that. And he's saying, look, that's not that impressive. And if that's how we define love your neighbor, that it means love those who love you and love those who are like you, just think about the things that can hide out in that. Partiality can hide there. If I'm to love those who love me and love those who are, li- who are like me, then I, c- I can hate everybody else. Racism can hide there. Racism is explicitly mentioned in verse 47. If you only love your brothers, if you only love those who are ethnic Jews and hate everybody else, Classism can hide there, where you treat those who have more than you or less than you differently. Sexism can hide there, where you treat a gender differently than you would your own. Political extremism can hide there. Those people on the Trump train, those people on the Biden bus, it can hide out under love your neighbor if love your neighbor means love those who love you and love those who are like you. We end up drawing a really, really small world if that's what love your neighbor means. And then Jesus says, you've, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now again, the Old Testament never commands for us to hate our enemy. It never tells us to do that. Now we're to hate what God hates. We're to hate God's, uh, there's some times where uh, the psalmist says, I hate God's enemies, but that's not hate your enemies. There's never a command to do that. And again, if we, if we narrow what love of neighbor means, if we narrow that down to love those who love you and love those who are like you, we get a very small circle of people we have to love and a very large group of people that we get to hate. And that's a worldly kind of love. And the problem is that this worldly kind of love is really comfortable. It's really comfortable. It's really easy to love people who love you and love people who are like you. That is really, really easy. It's hard. Sometimes it's hard, but it's really hard to love people who don't love you and love people who are not like you. And it's destroying this this love, this worldly love is the cultural morality of our day. And it's destroying communities. It's destroying families. It's destroying churches. It's destroying our country. 
One of my favorite books I've read in the last year is a book by David French called Divided We Fall. It's a book that talks a lot about kind of civility in our country. I would, I would commend it to you. Listen, every book I recommend is Fish and Bones. There's only one book that I agree with everything in it. Okay? You tracking? But in that book, he, he makes some observations based on some of what Jesus is saying here. First thing he says is that we are increasingly comfortable labeling someone our enemy in our minds. We are increasingly comfortable thinking of people as our enemies. And he speaks of how we used to live in a culture that was primarily a bell curve. You know what a bell curve is. It kind of looks like this, and it talks about kind of where people fall on a spectrum. And he observes in his book that it used to be that there were a few people certainly on the extreme of things, but most everybody was kind of in the middle and, and, and those, there was a few people on the extremes. And what he notices in our country right now is that that bell curve has been inverted to where there are far more people kind of on the extremes of things and very few people kind of in the middle. And because of that, our, our, our culture has kind of uh, divided itself into these echo chambers where we spend the majority of our time with people who love us and are like us. And, and that has historical context because of the neighborhoods we live in, the schools we attend, the culturally defined groups we occupy. The internet feeds this. You, ne- you need to remember anything you see on the internet If you Google something, if you see something on your social media feed, if it shows up in YouTube, it's there because an algorithm thinks you want to see it. You have to work to find things that disagree with you. Do you understand? Like the the internet is driving us, driving us into our echo chambers. Our media choices feed this. The news we watch. The podcasts we listen to, all of it feeds into this idea of an echo chamber. And the longer we spend in our echo chambers, the more we start to think about those people. And the longer we think of them as those people, the sooner they become an enemy. And we're far too comfortable thinking about people as enemies. Second thing he mentions is we are increasingly comfortable speaking of some... Sorry, Siri, I don't need you to speak right now. No offense, Siri. Um, Second, we are increasingly comfortable speaking of someone as an enemy. We're increasingly comfortable doing that. We do that around politics. Those liberals. Those conservatives. We don't say, hey, my friend Brian. Or about masks. Those maskers, those anti-maskers, we're increasingly comfortable speaking about others as enemies, particularly on social media. We got a lot of keyboard courage. We'll say stuff on a keyboard that we would never say over coffee. And finally, when we do this, our world just gets smaller. Our world gets smaller and smaller, and it doesn't reflect the character of our father. David French uh, observes that when we get into our echo chambers, we actually just become more extreme versions of ourselves. In other words, being around people who are only like us does not make us better versions of ourselves. It makes us more extreme versions. And he also laments that what Jesus says in this passage is the common morality of the day. Today, what Jesus says here, 
Love people who love you and are like you. Hate everybody else. That's the morality of our day in the world right now and in the church. And he laments that. He makes the observation that even kindness toward others is seen as weakness. If you're kind to someone who's different from you, that's, you're, you're now weak because you're endorsing what they are and say. Two examples of this. Um, many of you know who Ellen DeGeneres is. Uh, she has a morning talk show. Uh, she got into trouble several months ago because she attended a Dallas Cowboys game with George W. Bush. There was video of them in his box. They were talking about the game, laughing and having a good time. She got lit up by, the, uh, by people on the left just lit up. Well, she goes on her show and she says this. Um, here's the thing. I'm friends with George Bush. In fact, I'm friends with a lot of people who don't share the same beliefs I have. She continued, when I say be kind to one another, I don't only mean the people that think the same way that you do. I mean, be kind to everyone. Well, she got roasted. Like people on the right were saying she was, she was um, virtual signaling. People on the left just kept questioning why she would be kind to someone who's an enemy. I mean, just absolutely roasted. And lest we think this is a product of the left, uh, very soon after Kamala Harris was elected as vice president of the U.S., there was a video of Lindsey Graham, Republican senator from South Carolina, going up and fist bumping her on the floor of the Senate. You would have thought that he, he was voting for her or something. Like, people just went nuts about that. Why, why would you encourage her? And his response was, we're colleagues. We're friends. And what's happening, because we, because we love those who love us and love people who are like us, we've kind of drifted into this echo chamber of a world where being kind to one another is now seen as a weakness. And this kind of love is worldly. When we love those who love us and love those who are like us, we're just like the world. Tax collectors do that. Gentiles do that, Jesus says. And it's not the kind of love that Jesus calls us to demonstrate. He calls us to demonstrate kingdom love. Second point, kingdom love, verse 44. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But I say to you, remember who that is? That's Jesus. That's our king. He's the one who loved his enemies throughout his whole life. He loved these scribes and Pharisees. He wanted them to repent and, and come to him. The night before he was betrayed, he washed Judas's feet. He washed the rest of the disciples' feet too. They didn't betray him, but they deserted him. And then while he's hanging on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And on that cross, he died for enemies like us who rebel against him all the time. That's the one saying, but I say to you. And he gives us a command. He says, love your, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, Jesus is not saying we no longer have to love our neighbor. Okay. Okay. I don't have to love my neighbor anymore. Good. Cause I didn't like them very much. Um, he's, he's not, he's not moving the circle. He's enlarging it. Okay. You have to love your neighbor and your enemy. He's making it bigger. We're to love those who love us and those who do not. We're to love those who are like us and those who are not. How? Well, Luke's account, I'm going to put that up on the screen for you. In Luke's account, he writes this, but I say to you who hear, this is Jesus speaking, love your enemies, then he tells how. Do good to those who hate you. That's active. That's an active 
uh, work of love toward those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. That's about how you speak to and about them. And then pray. Pray for those who abuse you. Notice these are active. Love is a verb here. This is active love toward your enemies. Now back to Matthew 5, verse 44. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now that does not mean you don't pray for others. He's he's widening the circle, not moving it. And Jesus is saying, pray for those who persecute you. Now, John Stott wrote a commentary on this passage, and he, he said this. Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors actually while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and feet. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then he says this. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? Kingdom love means you love your enemies. It means you pray for those who persecute you. Why? Why would we do this? Well, because that's what our father's like. We do this because that's what our father's like. Look at verse 45. It says, For he makes the sun, he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus says we are to love like this because God loves like this. Now, he's, this is what theologians call common grace. He's not, and he's not saying that everyone is saved. This is not universalism. What this does mean is that God has a kindness that he shows to everybody. That, that lost people get to see beautiful sunrises. That lost and saved people get to experience the goodness that comes from rain. And that we are to reflect God's common grace and our common kindness to others, whether they're our neighbor or our enemy. He's saying this is what our, our father is like, and we're to love like this. Now, the problem is that this is really hard. It's really hard. It is much easier. It's still hard, but it's much easier to love people who love me and love people who are like me. It's really hard to love people who do not love me and love people who are not like me. It's really hard. But this is what Jesus has called us to. It's what Jesus has called us to. He's called us to kingdom love that reflects our king and his kingdom. So how do we apply this? One thing. And that's this. We must love this way. Because our Father loves this way. We must love this way. We must love those who love us and those who do not love us. We must love those who are like us and those who are not like us. This is not not an elective. This is not an optional add-on. This is a command. And when you see a command in the Bible, there are two things that should happen, at least, two things. First, when we see this command, love your neighbor and love your enemy, something in us should go, I can't do that. Like if you're looking at this going, got it, easy, next. Then, man, either we are very different, which is possible, or you're not understanding what this is saying. When you see this command, something in you ought to go, there's no way. 
But the other thing we should do when we see a command in the Bible is we should do what it says. And our inability does not remove us, does not remove responsibility from us. And so what this command should do is it should drive us to the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, I got nothing to do this. I need your grace and power if I'm going to do this. And Jesus kind of reminds us here, this is not optional. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 45. Start in 44. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now, this is not some way we merit that. This is not something we achieve so that we can be called sons of God. But it is a metric that, that tells us whether we are or not. And if you're reading this going, not going to do it, then you need to ask some important questions about your heart. If, you, if you're unwilling to love your enemies, you need to ask some important questions about your heart. Because this is, Jesus says, this is a metric that shows us whether we're sons of God or not. And then in verse 48, he says, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Perfect means complete. He's going back to 520 where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's, he's raising the bar. And the goal here with raising the bar is to help us understand, and there's no way we can get in apart from his grace. And when we realize that, something amazing happens. When we realize there's no way I can get in apart from his grace, we come to the one who is the God of all grace. And we say to him, I've got nothing. And his response is, I've got everything. And what God does when we are saved, when we are converted, is the Holy Spirit takes out our old heart, gives us a new one, and then he comes to live in that new heart to empower us to do everything he commands. Now listen, we're still messed up. We've still got Romans 7 going on in our lives where we want to do what we don't want to do and we don't want to do what we should do. We've got all that going on and we've got the Spirit of God in our hearts to empower us to do everything he's called us to do. And we must love this way. This is not optional. It's not elective. It's not an add-on. We must love this way because our Father loves this way. And aren't we glad that our Father loves this way? Because the Bible says we were enemies. We were enemies. We were enemies. And he loved us so much that he sent his son to die so that we could be made family. We must love this way because our father loves this way. And my hope, my prayer is that we would do that together. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us. This kind of love is all the more necessary in our day where everyone is so divided. Everyone's so distant from one another and we're in our echo chambers and everything's so divided, Lord. We need, we need this kind of love to demonstrate toward our friends, toward our enemies, 
toward those that we've determined are enemies. Lord, we need, need your grace to display this kind of love, Lord. Not, not just for our own hearts, but for our church, for our family, for our community, for our nation. We, we need this kind of love today. And Lord, we come to you because you're the only source of it. You're the only source of it. So Lord, we need your grace. We need your grace to give us the love that you've called us to. And we come to you asking for it. And we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.